guys doing this morning? You guys doing well? Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is TJ. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you're with us today as we are in uh, the second to last week of our Voices series. And I am pumped for today. Number one, we, we have our immeasurably more miracle offering coming up here at the end of the service. But, but even more exciting than that is, is, is we have an update video at the end of service showing what's going on with our future facility. Anybody getting excited for November 4th going into a, Okay, a couple people are perfect, perfect. But what I'm most excited about today is, is that I, I have a good friend here today. He is actually one of the overseers of our church. And uh, he is the president of a missions organization called One Hope, uh, reaching children and youth all over the world. I think this year they're going to reach over 100 million kids with the gospel this year. Come on, somebody. That's amazing right there. In fact, they have a table out back after service. You want to go check out and see what they do and how they operate. In fact, they just gave me a children's Bible for uh, Alexander. So I'm really, really pumped because I, he didn't like his current Bible. So we'll try a different Bible, see if he likes that one. But uh, uh, Rob has been a dear friend. Uh, in fact, Rob, uh, I, I don't know if you realize this or not, but, you know, when I decided I was going to go and plant a church, uh, you were there at Bayside that weekend speaking, and that evening uh, we all went out to dinner, and, and as you and I and Pastor Randy were leaving, you stopped me and you said, you know what, TJ, I believe in you. I believe in what God is going to do in you in South Florida, and I want to be the first person to give to the future of Coastal. And, uh, and if you're here today and your life has been changed or transformed or if you found Christ, I want you to know that the reason that happened is because Rob was the first person to say, you know what, I believe that South Florida needs a church, and I want to be a part of that, and I want to be on right. the front end, and I want to help pave the way to people experiencing, knowing, and following Jesus. Amen. So can you guys give a huge coastal welcome to my good friend and one of the overseers of our church, Pastor Rob Hoskins. All right. Thanks, bro. Love you, man. All right. Thanks, Pastor TJ. Great to be here with you. It's been a while, and uh, thanks for reminding me of that story, and I do remember that day, and I was uh, so thrilled when TJ and Shayla decided to move down here to South Florida and plant this great work, and to see what God has done in, in just nine years, and to be here on this Sunday, which is sort of the threshold of the few weeks before you guys move in to the next sort of iteration of what God has for you as the church in Broward County, moving into your new facility, moving into this new church. I just feel like, um, as TJ and I were talking several months ago, and he said, hey Rob, are you free on this Sunday? Are any Sunday sort of leading up to when we're going to be in the new building? This is a sort of a historic moment in the life of the church. How many of you know this is a historic moment in the life of your church? Because God is moving you on to new things. And so as TJ was sharing that with me, from that very moment, I just began to pray and say, Lord, you know, as, a, as an overseer of the church and as a friend of Pastor TJ's, and uh, we've got a lot of one-hopers that go here to the church, you know, what is it that you would like me to share? And, and I really believe that the Lord has given me a really specific word for you this morning on where you are right now as a congregation at this particular moment in time. So we're just going to jump right into the word so that we can uh, just get in tune with what uh, God has for us. And we're going to be in the book of Ezra this morning. And we're just going to sort of skim through the first uh, several chapters of the book of Ezra because I think it's a prophetic word for Coastal at this particular moment in time. 
And, um, and I, I love this church. You've supported One Hope and what we're doing, so we really believe we're partners with you in, in everything that you do and everything we did. You know, this is the way the kingdom works. I find a young church planner. I say, come to South Florida. I'll invest in you. I made an offering to them. And ever since then, you guys have been making offerings back to us, and it's just been like iron sharpening iron. Isn't that the way the kingdom's supposed to work? Where you give and then you receive way more than you ever even dreamed or imagined would, would ever happen. And so here in the, in the story of, of the children of Israel, of the people of God, things were bad. I mean, here Israel has been taken into captivity. Because of Israel's turning their back on God, because of their sin, they've suffered the consequences. And so this mighty empire called Babylon comes in, it destroys the city of Jerusalem. The temple, everything, the walls, everything is torn down. They actually take the last king of Judah, they pluck out his eyes, they kill his sons, and they lead him 700 miles like an animal back to Babylon so that, they can be a, so that the Babylonians can show that they've made a mockery of the nation of Israel. They take the majority of the educated people, all the young people that can make the journey, they bring them back to Babylon and they leave Jerusalem in utter ruins. It's destroyed. Fast forward 70 years, and here we are now. There's been several generations in Babylon. All that's left back in Jerusalem is their distant cousins and relatives, but there's nothing left of the people of Israel. It seems as if God's plan of working through the nation of Israel has been utterly destroyed, that it's a hopeless situation. Anybody ever been in a hopeless situation before? No matter what's going on, it doesn't seem like there is an answer anywhere for us. This is the way the people are feeling in Israel. In, uh, uh, people of Israel are feeling in Babylon at this particular moment. And you would think at this time that, that God would stir the heart of one of these Israelites and give them a fresh new vision. But there's no vision coming even from the people of God themselves. And here in the book of Ezra, in the first chapter, we actually see that God intervenes on their behalf. Listen to what it says in chapter 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus. Now that's important. To put this proclamation in writing and send it throughout the kingdom. God actually stirs the heart of the most powerful man on the face of the earth, who's a pagan, who has actually been instrumental in destroying the people of Israel, God stirs his heart in order to bring about the revival of his people. He stirs the heart of Cyrus and to make a proclamation that the children of Israel should go back and start rebuilding Jerusalem. Then we fast forward a little further on. Then God stirred the hearts of the priests and the Levites and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. You see what's happening. First, God stirs the heart of this pagan ruler. He stirs the circumstances that are going on in society, in life, in culture to bring about his destiny and what should truly be the place of his presence through his people in the earth, right? This is what, this is what the people of God, the people of it, the nation of Israel, the temple represented. It represented the, the, the worship to an almighty God, the word of God being planted in and a, a witness to the entire world. And it seemed like that vision of the worship, the word, and the witness were dead. But then God says, no, my word will last forever. 
And so he stirs the heart of the king. And then all of a sudden, after the king's heart is stirred, then faith begins to arise in the hearts of the priests and the Levites, and then their hearts are stirred. They catch this vision, and they start saying, let's go back and build the temple of God. We fast forward to chapter 2, and it says there in, in, in chapter 2 in the 64th verse, so a total of 42,360 people returned to Judah. I mean, in a matter of a few short weeks, one man's heart is stirred. Then a few other people's hearts are stirred. And then, just in a matter of weeks, when fresh vision comes in, now 42,000 people say, let's go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. I mean, this is a renewal. This is a revival. And this is the way God works. This is the way it worked in the One Hope ministry. My dad had a vision. Take God's word and give it to every child. His heart was stirred. He started, he started sharing that vision, what God had put in his heart. Then I came along with my dad and said, yeah, let's take God's word to every child in the world. Then all of a sudden, all kinds of churches and people got involved, and the vision began to grow. So TJ and Shayla are over on the other coast of Florida, and for some reason, God stirs their heart to come here to this city. He stirs their heart for Broward County. Doesn't make any sense. I mean, it would have made a lot more sense for them to stay in Bradenton, take on one of the campuses that Pastor Brandy had. That's what he wanted for their lives. But no, God stirred them to go to a place where the word, where the witness and worship needed to be restored. And they began to share the vision with some of you. And then a few of you on that first launch team came along and said, our hearts are stirred. And then all of a sudden it says 42,000 people. How many of you want to believe for 42,000 people here in Broward County? That can happen. That's the way God's spirit works. So now we have these 42,000 people who make this treacherous journey. You know, it just takes a verse here and it says, then they went back. You know what going back means? I mean, there is, there is no airplanes, there is no trains taken, there are no buses. All there are is some stinky mules and your feet to get you 700 miles back to Jerusalem. Can you imagine 42,000 people? making this treacherous journey. Many people would die along the way as they made their way back to Jerusalem, but they do it because their hearts are stirred to rebuild the temple of God. And as they make this journey, we see that actually what's happening in, the, in their hearts as, as they begin to, to move back to this place, it says that when they arrived at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, verse 68, some of the family meters made voluntary offerings toward the rebuilding of God's temple on its original site. Now, I want you to see what's happening here because what happens is, in, in chapter 3, it actually says in early autumn when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled. So their hearts have been stirred. They move all the way back to Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's early summer now. And, and they have nowhere to live. They have no place to go. So what, what they tell the people is, the priests say, look, go out and find your distant relatives. You know, 70 years ago, you had Cousin Abe who was over here, and he still lives here. Maybe you've been writing him letters, there's been correspondence. Go find him. Go find your former family members and see if they'll take you in, and then come back three months later in the early autumn for us to rebuild the temple. I mean, this is a faith journey. How many of you know a temple never gets built without faith? That building over there didn't get built without people like you having great faith and your heart stirred. This is what happened. So they come back in the, in the early autumn. They've gone out. They found their distant relatives. And now they gather back together after they settled in the town. All the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. 
even though the people were afraid of the local residents, now, now they were afraid of them because they really didn't know who they were, and what they found out is they had a lot of enemies now. I mean, you come in with 42,000 people, and what would you do if like 10 relatives showed up at your house tomorrow? Distant relatives that you had never met before, like third, fourth, fifth cousins. And they came in with five of their kids and they moved into your living room, started eating your food, started taking your jobs. So this great resistance has now been built up against the stirring of the heart. Listen, guys, nothing gets done for the kingdom without resistance. Nothing, nothing ever gets done until we break through. So there's this great resistance that's happening. They're afraid now because of the position they've been in. You know, you get stirred up and you go, let's go do this. And then some resistance comes and suddenly this fear comes into their heart. They were afraid. And it says they rebuilt the altar at its old site. Now let me tell you, before you ever build a temple, you have to build an altar. Anything you want to do for God in your life, you have these visions of building something. The strength of whatever you build first must have a foundation of the altar. I don't care how big the building is or beautiful the building is over there. All it is is a monument unless it's built on the foundations of the altar of the Lord. Where's our altar at this morning? Where's your altar at this morning? you have a strong altar and so so they understand that before they build anything they need to establish the altar and so they do this they go to the old place they begin to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and each evening so they begin with the altar before they ever start building when the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple the priests put on their robes their trumpets the Levites descendants they began to clash their cymbals in praise to the Lord just as King David had prescribed when praise and thanks, they sang the song of the Lord. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising. Now understand what's happening. There has not been worship in Israel for more than 70 years. For the first time in 70 years, there is worship in Israel. The vision of God has been revived among his people. And suddenly the vision is about to take place. So there's great joy. There's great excitement. They gave a great shout. So now you have 42,000 people that are shouting. What a praise service. Can you imagine 42,000 people gathered together? 70 years, no worship. They're going nuts. They're thanking God. They're praising God that the temple had been, the foundation had been laid. But then listen to what it says. But many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud voice that could be heard far in the distance. This is a strange thing that's going on. In the midst of this fantastic worship service, in the midst of all this praise that hasn't taken place in 70 years, there are some people that, that are not praising God. They're actually weeping and sorrowful because what they're saying is this foundation is not like the former temple that we have seen before and so they they they, they come and they actually start despising what God is in the middle of establishing here and I want you to keep this in mind as we move forward okay so there's some people that are praising God there's some people that actually are are, are crying in the midst, and, 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 the loud, and, and there's such a loud noise of both rejoicing and, 
and weeping that is taking place. But the work has begun. The hearts have been stirred. Worship is being restored in Israel. The word is about to be preached. The witness of God is about to take place in, in, in the nation. But then we, then we see one of the most tragic stories in the, one of the saddest verses to me that ever takes place. So the worship service has begun. Now they're going to start actually building the temp- temple. And in chapter 4 it says, When the local residents then tried to discourage and frighten the people of Judah to keep them from their work, they bribed agents to work against them and to frustrate their plans. This went on during the entire reign of King Cyrus of Persia and lasted until King Darius of Persia took the throne. And then we skip down to verse 24, and here's one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. Verse 24, so the work on the temple of God in Jerusalem had stopped and it remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius of Persia. Look at what's happening here. In a short amount of time, everyone's heart is stirred. The, the, the work on the temple has begun. They're, they're in the middle of this fantastic worship service. Then all of a sudden, not only has, has the king's heart been stirred, not only have leaders' hearts been stirred, not only has the people's hearts been stirred, but all of a sudden, Satan's heart is stirred. If, if you do anything for God on this earth, it's going to stir the heart of the enemy. If you're accomplishing anything in your family, in your life, in your ministry, in your work, in your church, to help establish God's kingdom on earth, then the enemy will be stirred. It will awaken him. And I have seen this throughout my life in ministry. Every time one hope would, would grow to a certain level, the enemy would become afraid. He, he would be stirred. He would see that God's plan was beginning, and he would come at us with everything he had. And, and here, now the good news is that in all these in all these three, 4,000 years since this happened, his tactics have not changed at all. The enemy's got no original weapons of warfare. The enemy has no new tactics. He has no new imaginative strategies. His, his, Satan just has the same old, same old strategies that he's had throughout all of time in history. And what are those strategies? We need to identify what these strategies in our life and ministry We need to see exactly what it is that Satan is going to come against you in your life, in your work, in your family, in your job, in your school, in the visions that you have, in this church. We need to identify what are these these weapons that Satan will will use to come against you in your life. And they're, they're, they're right there. They're plain and simple. The first thing is they try to intimidate them. Whenever you try and do anything for God, there are people that will try and intimidate you. They'll come against you, and they'll try and say, who are you? Why do you think you should do that? Why do you think that, 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 that you can succeed? Why do you think that you have the ability to do anything in your life? I mean, this intimidation comes against all of us whenever we are doing anything purposeful for God. Intimidation comes against them. And, and, and many times... It comes from places that we don't expect. I mean, you remember back when the temple was being built and everybody was rejoicing? Remember there were some people that weren't rejoicing, but that they were actually crying? And, and, and why were they crying? Because what they were doing is they were saying, this temple is not as great as the former temple. You see, this 
Intimidation is called the spirit of comparison. And this is one of the most deadly weapons the enemy has to intimidate you. You know, no matter how much you do, no matter how much you succeed, no, no matter what you accomplish, the enemy will always try and come and say, oh yeah, but look at what they're doing. Look at their temple. Look at how much... Not- now, now, what we need to identify, but we don't have time to completely unpack this, but let me tell you, those people were living under a false illusion. The comparison wasn't even true, right? I mean, do the math. It says, this, this is not as great as the temple we saw. Well, dude, how old are you? We've been gone for 70 years. You were young enough to make this journey. They didn't take any old people with them on the trip. So you weren't even born at the time of the former temple. So you know what this was? This was Babylon gossip. This was people that were, that were back in Babylon living as refugees, and all they could do was talk about how great Jerusalem used to be. How magnificent the temple was before. And in their minds, they had built up these structures and, 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 and they had this vain imagination. And they were comparing reality to false illusions. And this happens to all of us. We're trying to live up to false expectations maybe that, that our parents put on us or, or that other people put on us or our brothers and sisters put on us and, 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 and understand that this intimidation and fear and comparison was actually coming from inside the household of God. I mean, did you guys actually know that there's actually gossip inside the church? That there's actually intimidation that comes from, from other people within the kingdom? I mean, because Satan loves to get into our business. He loves to use these weapons of warfare against us to stop the work of God moving forward in your life. And that's exactly what's happening here. There is this intimidation that we see, this spirit of intimidation that comes against the children of Israel that is incredibly effective at stopping them from, from moving forward with the work of God. What is the other thing that, 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 that comes against? What is another weapon that we identify here as coming against the children of Israel? Not only are they intimidated, it says that they were discouraged from their work. There, there is this discouragement that comes over them. All, all of a sudden, there is a, there is a depression that sets in. I mean, they started with such zeal and life and vision, and then the, the circumstances of the reality around them they began to grow discouraged. They had this great worship service, and then they had to go right back and move in with their cousins that weren't too happy about them moving in. You know, they, they had to listen, maybe, to someone saying, when are these people going to get their own place? You know, the realities of life began to be so overwhelming with us. And Satan wants us to grow discouraged by the circumstances of our life that they become a weight on us and depression begins to set. Any, has that ever happened to anybody here? I mean, all of a sudden, things that, that you had a fresh vision for, I mean, even in your marriage, you had this vision of what your marriage was going to be like, and, and some of your other friends had marital problems, and they had issues, but, you, but when you got married, you weren't going to have any of those issues in your marriage. I mean, but then it was just like weeks or months into it, and all of a sudden, there was this, it, the honeymoon was over, you know? And, and you guys could move into that great new building with all this great excitement and zeal and enthusiasm. But let me tell you, after you've been in there several weeks, all of a sudden the same cares of life are going to come crashing in on you. 
And if you're not careful, the enemy will take a seed of discouragement and say, you know, it really isn't that great after all, is it? I still got to get up and go to work in the morning. You know, those things that annoyed me about the people in church, they're the same people that are still there. Because we don't live in a, in a perfect utopia. We don't live in the place of perfection. We are still here on earth in a spiritual warfare, fighting against these, these, th this warfare in order to establish the temple of God in our community, in our city. And spiritual warfare will never... He comes against them with intimidation. He comes against them with, with discouragement. And then, then he comes against them with bribery. I mean... They send secret agents back to the king and these agents are used and they, and they try and come and they try and bribe the leaders to say, hey, look, we'll take care of you if you stop building this temple, if you stop doing that. And you say, well, man, these guys must have been really evil leaders to even be uh, thinking about being bribed by the things of this world to stop them from accomplishing God's mission. You know what? It happens to every single one of us every day. Our hearts are so easily bribed by the things of this world. We start with these grand intentions of being a, a witness for the Lord in our community. But it becomes so easy for us to, to suddenly have our hearts bribed for the things of this world rather than the things of God. We, we get involved in the, in the rat race of this American life, which which compels us to try and keep up with, with what our culture and society says is important. So, so, so we want a bigger house. You know, we, we want more luxurious things. We want a bigger promotion. We want to build a name for ourselves. And so we start, our hearts become bribed away from the things that are most important, away from our, our family. I mean, the greatest crisis in America, I think, today is that We've all gotten so busy in our lives trying to, trying to keep up. I mean, our kids are spending less and less time with their fathers and their mothers. Why? Because their, their hearts are being bribed away from what they know in their hearts is most important. My family, my God, the witness of, of Jesus on the earth. But it becomes so easy for us to be seducted. And that's what Satan does here. He seducts their heart. He bribes them away from the most important things. And then we come to this tragic scripture that says, and the work of God stopped. I mean, everything started with such zeal. In, just a, in less than a year, 42,000 people have come and started building this foundations for the temple. And then Satan just throws his same three weapons against them, and in a matter of weeks, Everything comes to a crashing halt. And you know how long this lasts? I mean, we have to go all the way to the beginning of the next chapter to realize that the work of God didn't start again. In the fifth chapter, it says, At that time, the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem. They prophesied in the name of the Lord. And then it says they responded by starting again to rebuild the temple of God in Jerusalem. You know how much time elapses between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5? 17 years. In a matter of months, 
with God's people in the right place, with their hearts focused on what he wants, they're able to move, build, begin again to restore God's plan for his people on earth. And discouragement and intimidation and bribery come, and in weeks the work stops and lays dead for 17 years. I'm talking about a real thing here. And I think it's important for us, as you guys move in to this next phase of what God has for you as a church, to make sure this doesn't happen to you. Because it can happen to anybody. It can happen to this church. It can happen in your marriage. It can happen with you and your kids. It can happen in your ministry. It can happen in your workplace. It can happen in the calling that God has on your life. You can start with such zeal, and you can begin to do great things for God, and then these, these weapons can come against you, and everything can come to a standstill, and you can be derailed from the purposes and destiny of God and waste years of your life. So how do we prevent this from happening? It's really clear in the Scripture. God, God has an antidote for every single one of these of oppositions that come against him. You know what I noticed in that fourth chapter? Right? They have the greatest worship service in 70 years, and then these, these things come again. You know there is no mention of worship in the fourth chapter? The people stop worshiping. The people stop worshiping. I'll tell you, when opposition comes, you've got a weapon, and it is called worship. You can worship your way out of anything. You know why? Because when you worship God, you invite his presence. How many of you know if God is for us, nothing can be against us? When you begin to worship God, his presence fills the temple. His presence fills your heart. His presence fills your life. And when you begin to feel God and his presence around you, all of a sudden, you can push back the darkness of fear, discouragement, bribery, because you are so close to God, you say, I don't want any of those things. I'm in his presence. I feel him in my life. There's nothing I love more than Jesus and his presence. And all of a sudden, there's nothing in the world that can come against you. You have to establish worship in your life every time the enemy comes against you. And, and you know what? You don't feel like worshiping. You don't feel like worshiping when things are dark around you. You don't feel like worshiping when you feel all alone. You don't feel like worshiping when everything going isn't exactly as you like it to go. But the Bible says that that is the work of worship. I am going to set my heart to worship. No matter what the circumstances are around me, Lord, I'm going to lift up my hands. I'm going to open my mouth. I'm going to thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy and your joy in my life. And as soon as I begin to do that, his presence comes in like a flood. Worship. Uh, the second antidote that we, that we find here is the word. The word. So, so the work has stopped for 17 years. And then the first verses of the fifth chapter say, Haggai and Zechariah come. And what do they come with? They come with the word of the Lord. What is the, what is the word described at in the Bible? It's the sword. It's the sword. You know what? They, they had just laid down their weapons. They, they, didn't pick up the, they didn't pick up their sword. Let me tell you, the word can slice through all fear. The word can, can utterly destroy intimidation. 
The word can cut bribery right in half. It is sharper than a two-edged sword is the word of God. And, and the word of the Lord came to them. I don't have time to, to dig in to what the word said. But these two prophets, God stirred the word in the heart of the community. And as soon as the word came, within a matter of days of those prophecies, it says the work began again. Because the people heard the word of God. Friends, you need to be in the word every day. You need to be worshiping every day. You need to be in the word every day. You need to have the discipline of studying and absorbing the word of God. You should, you should be in the word every day of your life. And if you're not in the word, then you have no weapons against fear, intimidation, and bribery. But man, when you have the word of God in your heart, everything that comes against you, you got a word. Satan comes against Jesus himself in the time of temptation to try and win the battle and destroy the work of Christ on earth. This great battle took place in the desert during Jesus' time of fasting in the desert, and he came against him with three things. What did Satan come against him with? Intimidation. Satan came against him with intimidation, with fear, and with bribery. I'll give you all this. He tried to intimidate him. He tried to bring fear against him. What was Jesus' response to Satan? Satan, it is written. Even Jesus himself called upon the word of God to destroy the work of Satan in his life. You think we're any better than Jesus? Man, we need the word in our lives. We need the word in our lives. And I don't have time to dig into the words that Haggai and Zechariah, all, all that they prophesied over the children of Israel. But I encourage you this week, if you're in a place where Satan has come against you with fear, discouragement, read those two chapters. Now, these two dudes are very different. I mean, Zechariah is like this poet prophet. I mean, he has this flowery language and everything is in metaphor. Like all the people, what is it, left brain, right brain? What's the, what, what, which is which? Like the right brain is the real cerebral kind of fact person, and, and the left brain is like the artistic kind of our, you know, well, well Zechariah is that left brain kind, and Haggai is the right brain kind of prophet, okay? I mean, I've read Zechariah probably a hundred times, and I still don't understand what the dude's trying to say. I mean, and, and my wife just loves the flowery language and all. She's, all oh, that's so deep. I'm just like, I don't know what he's saying. You know, Haggai, total opposite. This guy is in your face, direct word, can't, make, can't, can't say it any straighter than Haggai. So I'm a Haggai kind of dude. And, and, and he comes and he brings this word that, that is so direct, so strong. And what is, what is Haggai saying to the, to, to the people that are there? Basically, his word to them. Listen, listen to what he says to them. I mean, this is, this is powerful stuff here. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says to you. The people are saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. You see, for 17 years, it's not time. It's not a good time. It's not, it's not a good time. How many times, TJ, did people tell you it's not a good time to build this church? The city told you that, some people in the congregation, probably Shayla told you that. I mean, everybody, it, it, there's never a good time to build a temple of God, friends. And 17 years, there has been, he says, they've been saying that to you. And then he asks them this really, ah, brutal, mm, convicting word. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? Woo, baby, man, that is, you see what happened? When those people made their trip, I, 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 I did all the timeline on this. When those people said, we're going to leave Babylon, what did they do? There's a small scripture there that says they put in an order for wood in the cedars of Lebanon. And he told them, go back to your houses and come back in three months because we need to wait for the wood to come, is what they're saying. 
That's why they waited. So now the wood has been delivered. They start building. Fear, intimidation, and bribery come against him. They stop working for 17 years. And people started taking the wood and building their own homes. You see, friends, God has given you gifts and talents and abilities to establish his church, to build a place of worship and witness and word here in Broward County. And if we're not careful, the house of God can begin to lay in ruin as we all build these things for ourselves. I don't know about you, but that convicts my heart. Every day I need to ask, Lord, am I focused on the right things? Lord, am, am I using my gifts for you or for myself? Are, are Kim and I using our relationships and our contacts to help build a name for ourselves or lift up the name of Jesus? What is this temple going to be all about? What is this new building going to be all about? I hope it's not a temple for Coastal to just to celebrate who you are as a community, but I pray it sits in the center of being a missional witness to people who have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. And that the house would be flourishing. What are your weapons of warfare? Worship, word, and witness. These are the weapons that God gives us. And if you will utilize those, then, then you will see God bring such blessing and flourishment upon your life like you can't even imagine. Th this story is my story. I mean, my dad's heart was stirred. Take God's word. Give it to every child in the world. world. I began to work with dad, and, and doors began to open that were unbelievable. I mean, we, 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 we saw, I could, I could tell story after story. TJ's lived these stories with me over these last several decades. And, and what God did at One Hope was unbelievable. But there were moments in our history that I could point to where the enemy came in like a flood. There were moments where the entire ministry of One Hope could have been destroyed or it could have been stopped for 17 years if we weren't intentional about our, our worship, about our worship, and about our witness. I remember about 10 years into the vision. I mean, God said, take my word and give it to every child. And, 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 and we had begun to do that all over Africa and Latin America. And then Russia opened up. And, and, and One Hope got permission to go in in the former Soviet Union before it fell apart. And I was with the Minister of Education, and we were asking permission to bring one, one, our, our books of hope into the, into the schools. And we received permission to bring God's Word to every child in the former Soviet Union. 62 million kids in the most atheist. We had pastors in prison, and yet they were asking us to give God's Word to the children of that country. You talk about a stirring in our hearts. And when that happened, suddenly the church in America, their hearts were stirred, and they started joining with us, and the ministry just exploded, and it began to grow and thrive, and, and we were reaching more kids than we ever dreamed we would reach. And you know what? The heart of the enemy was stirred. And man, 10 years in, it seemed like everything came against us. My dad, my mentor, my hero got, got stage four cancer, and, and he, was, he was dying. I was a young leader. 
And then, then we had all kinds of opposition from the inside. I don't have time to get into it, but, but people within the church were trying to say, you know, well, you know, one hope, the part of the church we were part of, you're growing too fast, we need to slow things down. We don't know what's going to happen to, to Bob, and so I, we, Rob's too young. And so, so they, they said, you know, they were going to take back the ministry, everything. And I, I, I remember when my dad was laying on his, uh, really on his deathbed, stage four cancer. And I was supposed to go to a meeting to help uh, convince our, our leadership that the ministry should go on. And, and I remember I was young, and, and, and they were intimidating me, and I was filled with fear. And, and, and they said, you know, and I remember I responded in anger. I didn't respond in worship. I didn't respond with the word of God. I wasn't a good witness. And, and, and I walked out of that meeting so, I'd never, I, I don't think I'd ever been lower in my life. My heart, and, I, and I came back to my dad, and I said, Dad, I blew it. I said, I don't know what to do. And I, I remember telling my dad, I can't fill your shoes. I can't do this anymore. I went back and I told my wife, I said, Kim, let's quit. And she goes, hey, we got a letter. Kim and I always said we'd never pastor in America. Because it wasn't what we were excited. We were missionaries. And yet there was this one church in San Francisco. And I had told Kim, I said, if, if, that's the only church I'd ever want to pastor in America. I opened up the letter. They said, Rob, we'd like you and Kim to come and be our pastors. Bribery. I thought, man, big church, nice car, don't have to do this anymore, can just walk away. And I, and, and I went to, I was going to go tell my dad, Dad, we're going to do this. And, and he said, before I could even tell him what was going on, he said, Rob, I need you to go to another meeting for me. And I was like, Dad, I totally failed in that last meeting you sent me to. And I was going to tell him, and he said, I need you to go. I remember going to that meeting. It was in Dallas, Texas. And it was at Wycliffe Bible Translators. And, and, and I knew that it was like a dorm setting. And man, I was trying to do dad's work. I was trying to do my work. I was overloaded. I just, so I called ahead and I said, look, I'm going to come to the meeting. But I said, I, I need my own room. And they said, no problem. You know, Pastor Hoskins will have your own room for you. And so, so I went and I checked in. They gave me my key and I opened up the door. And as soon as I did, I saw that there were some clothes hanging there in the closet. I thought, oh man, I got the wrong room. So I started backing out. And this guy sticks his head around. I said, I'm so sorry, I'm in your room. He goes, no, 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 no. He said, you're Rob Hoskins. I said, yeah. And he said, I found out you were going to be here, and I asked if I could room with you. And this guy was like the most talkative guy I'd ever met in my life. He was obnoxious, man. I mean, he would not leave me alone. I mean, I'd be sitting there in between meetings trying to get some work done, and he'd come over and start talking to me, and I'd be like, bro, I'm trying to get some work done here. Oh, yeah, man, I'm sorry. Oh, that reminds me. Just start talking some more. And then I got a call from my mom. My dad got a staph infection. She said, Rob, you got to get it home right away. First flight home. His temperature is 104. They don't think he's going to make it through the night. I couldn't get a flight out that night. And so I went to bed that night for, <sighs> angry with God for the first time in my life. You ever been angry with God? God, you called me to this work. And everything's gone wrong. And I thought, when I go home, I don't know if my dad's going to be dead or alive, but I am done with this. And, and I had just fallen asleep, and the guy in the bed next to me said, hey, are you awake? I said, well, I am now. He said, you know, I was sitting here thinking, I was thinking about the ministry that, that I run, and he said, you know, it's a lot like yours. He said, my dad built it, and then they handed it over to me. 
But he said, as soon as I took over, everything began to go wrong. I made some dumb decisions, and, and the ministry was falling apart, and I was going to quit. My wife wanted me to quit. We were done. And I'd been scheduled to go on this trip to India, and, 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 the, past, and, and the board said, we don't want you to go and spend the money because we don't know if you're even going to be the leader here a few weeks from now. And so he said, I'm fine. I don't want to go to India. I don't want to do anything anymore. And he said, but I, I woke up, and the word of the Lord came to me, and and the Lord said, Morgan, go to India. And so he said, I told my wife, and she says, this is the worst time. He goes, I know, but he said, I went to India, and I went to this conference, and I, I kept waiting for God to speak to me, and God wasn't speaking. It was like, man, he said, there was just nothing coming from the Lord. And he goes, I got up from the conference, and I, and I, and I left, and I was walking in this garden, and I was angry, and I was, I was almost yelling at God. And, and as I was walking, I turned around, there was this guy walking along, behind me and that I hadn't seen and I turned to him and he introduced himself he said he was the gardener of, of this garden and, and he said you know as we were walking he said did you notice the plants that were here and I said yes I, I, I noticed and he said you see all these little plants and he said I'd noticed there were all these little potted plants all over the place these little trees and, and he said you know what those are for he said no he goes he says those are the ones that I sell he said and I I keep them in these pots so that people can take them when they buy them he said, how old do you think these trees are? And, and I said, they look very young, and so maybe a couple months old. And he said, no, no, no. He said, uh, you know, these, these trees are actually, some of them are three, four, five years old. And then he pointed to this tree in front of us, and it was this big, beautiful tree, and there was fruit on it right in front of us. And, and the gardener said, how old do you think that tree is? And I said, well, if these trees are three, five years old, he goes, that must be 30, 40 years old. Or, you know, and the gardener said, no. He said, it's... It, it's, the, it's five years old. It's the same age. He said it's the difference between being potted and being planted. And that guy sat up in the bed and he said, Rob Hoskins, the Lord sent me here to ask you, are you potted or are you planted? And man, the Holy Spirit just came over me at that moment. I just began to weep in my bed. And I said, Lord... You've called me to a great work of establishing your temple by providing your word to every child in the world. And Lord, I've allowed discouragement and intimidation and bribery to capture my heart. But Lord, tonight I make a decision. I'm going to worship you right now, Jesus. And I just raised my hand in that bed and I said, Lord, I love you. Oh, Jesus, I love you. As I began to worship, God's presence filled that room and, and the word of the Lord came to me. It wasn't my dad's word. It was my word. It was my calling. It was fresh. And I made a decision that night. Lord, I plant myself in this ministry. And no matter what winds come, no matter what obstacles, no matter what opportunities try and steal my heart, Lord, I plant. And Lord, if I go home and my dad's gone tomorrow, I plant myself tonight. I went home and the Lord had touched my dad. It's 20 years later. My dad's 82. And he'll fly 200,000 miles this year for One Hope. One Hope has grown 10 times since that night. Because you know what? God loves his church. But he uses you and I to help build the temple. 
And he's calling you this morning to plant yourself, to not be moved. Heavenly Father, we...